Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Nathan. If I've not had a chance to meet you, so glad that you're here. Um, let me give you a little bit of snapshot as to where we're going as a church. Uh, it's our practice at Restoration Church to work through books of the Bible, and uh, we're not doing that right now. So uh, what we're doing today is we're going to have a actually have a kind of one-off sermon this week, and next week you'll see what that is in just a moment. And then in a couple weeks, we're going to start a series on prayer. Uh, I often say to people that evangelism and prayer is the boat anchors of the Christian life. So we can always learn how to really love God in prayer. Uh, and so that's where we're going to go. But uh, uh, before we begin, let me pray for us as we open up God's word. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for the hope of Jesus. Thank you for the assurance that is found in his salvation. God, warm us to that. Instruct us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the uh, most uh, common questions I get, well, first off, you can imagine that I get a lot of questions as a pastor. Uh, I especially get a lot of questions as a pastor in Washington, D.C. Because you guys, you know, you all ask a lot of questions. And that's one of the reasons I love pastoring here. And one of the questions I get most frequently is... um, What do I do or how is it I'm supposed to understand someone that maybe took the name of Christian and yet wandered away from the faith? Uh, Or more complicated, uh, what do I do with someone that maybe took the name of Christian and yet uh, their doctrine and their life kind of swerves away from that true gospel? How am I supposed to think about them? What am I supposed to do? Did they lose their salvation? Is that what happened? Right? That seems a plausible answer, doesn't it? I mean, we can think about various things in life that we sort of fell out of love for. I used to love to collect baseball cards, right? I don't love to do that anymore. So I just sort of fell out of love. Is that how it works? I used to date a girl that I understood myself to love before I met my wife. And we broke up and I don't love her anymore. So is that what happens? Is it just that simple um, when it comes to salvation? Well, the answer to that is no, friends. It's not that simple. Because the reason why it's not that simple is unlike baseball cards or past girlfriends, salvation, friends, is bound up in the power, the performance and the promises of God. And so as we will see more in a moment, God's word promises we who are in Christ that nothing can separate us from his love. We who are in Christ, nothing can separate us from his love. So back to that question that I get most often. What are we to make of the people that swerve from the gospel that once claim to believe it? Or that still do, but affirm what God calls sin? That's the question that we're going to answer today. There are massive implications to this question, so we need to think through it carefully. Let me go ahead and tell you now, I'm probably going to frustrate you. Because you guys, thankfully, are used to just taking a passage and we work right through it. Uh, We're going to work a lot through the book of John, so if you want to go ahead and open up to John 1, we'll spend a lot of time in John, but I'm going to bounce around just so you know to some other passages. Uh, But that's the question that we're going to answer this morning. And the first thing that I want to call your attention to, before we actually get to the answering the question itself, we're going to do a couple things, because we need to ready ourselves to hear the answer that John will give us. And the first thing I want you to be aware of, and when we're answering this question, what to do with people that swerve, The first thing I want to make you aware of is that uh, the biblical writers are aware of this issue. It's not something that is uncommon to them. In other words, this is not something the Bible didn't see coming. And we're trying to have to figure it out. Uh, So Israel, we can think about this just skipping a rock through the Bible. Israel was given God's word in God's place uh, and with his presence and only to eventually where do we find them exiled into Babylon? Uh, Disobedient as God's people as a whole. 
In the New Testament, we're familiar with uh, Jesus' parable of the soils, the four soils. You remember, the first one is the one where they just reject the gospel entirely. The last one is the one that believed. But remember, there's two middle soils wherein they look like they receive the gospel with joy only to have the word be choked out. And of course, we know that familiar teaching, which we'll come back to later, Matthew 7, where Jesus addressed the people claiming that he was the Lord and doing works in his name. And yet Jesus said, I never knew you. And of course, that should be common to Jesus. He would have known that because he had it happen to him himself in the person of Judas. Uh, and then we go into the rest of the New Testament where we think about passages like Titus 1.16 where Paul is writing to a church planner named Titus and he says to them to be aware of people that profess to know God. This is Titus 1.16. Profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. And then we also know of 1 Timothy uh, 1.20 where Paul is addressing another disciple of his named Timothy and he references Alexander and Hymenaeus that, quote, made shipwreck of their faith. And then we can think about that tragic story of Demas, one of Paul's constant uh, traveling uh, companions on the mission field where he's with him. We see in Colossians giving greeting to the saints only to see that at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, we find Demas in love with this present world has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. And how can we forget the voluminous warnings to the churches uh, for the individuals to in those churches to wage the good warfare, to keep the faith? The devil prowls around you uh, like uh, waiting to devour you. And then, of course, we have Revelation chapter two, that terrible, tragic story of the church at Ephesus, where we see that they lost their first love. So the Bible, friends, is replete with examples of people or churches taking the name of Christ, and yet they do not persevere. They don't endure. And yet Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 13, so clearly, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so yet again, the Bible sounds a lot like the world we live in. It's one of my one of the many reasons I love the Bible is because it sounds like the world I live in. It's sort of chaotic and crazy and it helps me understand it. And so the reality is we all have our own kind of versions of this, don't we? In our own lives, we have our own Hymenaeuses and Alexanders and Demases, don't we? People that we know, family members, people that you know that maybe said that they love Jesus at one point and just went on to deny the gospel or people that still claim it. And yet their lives don't match that at all. And so I recognize, friends, that this is personal for a lot of you. This is personal for a lot of you. Uh, I recognize uh, this is personal for us as a church, isn't it? It's one of the reasons I chose to preach this is because we've seen this happen in our own church in recent months. So how are we to understand these things in light of the perfect character of God? And so, as I said, the first thing we need to note is the Bible reflects our experience. They're aware of these situations, but there's one more step that we need to take in order to answer the question. One more important step we need to take. And that step is, is we need to understand how salvation works in the first place in order to answer the question. In other words, if we're going to understand what happens to people that go on to deny or blaspheme the gospel, we have to understand how one comes to believe in the gospel in the first place. Because then, after we understand this in this way, then we will be in a better position to understand the question, the answer to the question, that is. And so let's do that. How do we understand how someone gets saved in the first place? I could go to a lot of places But as I mentioned, we're going to walk through the book of John and uh, just a few places in John. I want you guys to see that I'm not just sort of randomly cherry picking -picking verses. I'm choosing to use John and I'm going to use a few passages in there so we can see how 
uh, we should understand someone gets saved, which will then help us to understand the question. So uh, we've said, first off, that the Bible is familiar with these kinds of cases. Secondly, the thing I want you to see is salvation is God-centered and grace-based. Salvation is God-centered and grace-based. So every uh, question regarding things like this, in particular salvation, guys, these are huge questions. And so we have to start with God. We have to start with God. So many people go off the theological rails because they start in the wrong place. They start answering the question in the wrong place. Try to understand Apple without first understanding Steve Jobs, right? So in the same way, we need to understand who God is before we answer the question of salvation, which will eventually get us to understand those that swerve. So if we're going to make sense of those that swerve from the gospel, we have to understand how someone comes to the gospel, which means we have to first understand the God of the gospel. Now, this seems obvious, but guys, this is precisely where errant theologies go wrong all the time. They start with man and then they try to work their way to God. But we have to start with God and go to man. John chapter one starts with God. You'll notice the language here is echoing off of Genesis chapter one. Look at verse one of John. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He notice the word is a he. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. and The darkness has not overcome it. So this first few words in the beginning was the word. Now, we know if you slide down there to verse 14, this he uh, came into being is flesh, the one that he put on flesh. This is referencing Jesus. Jesus was in the beginning. So when he says beginning there, though, it's important that you understand the beginning is referencing creation, the beginning of creation, not referencing the beginning of God, because as we see there in the beginning of creation, Jesus already was. He was already there. And so uh, we see then that the word who is Jesus also was with God and he was God. So two big observations there. Jesus was God and he was with God. Now, you might ask the question, how can you be God and be with God? Well, this is referencing the historic Christian teaching of the Trinity. One God, one essence revealed in the three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. Try Unity. So this word, Jesus, was already existing at the beginning of creation. And he was God and he was with the other two persons that make up the one God. So simple takeaway for our question, guys, God is from eternity. He has no beginning and no end. We, though, were created. We had a beginning. God was already there in the beginning existing. And so God then is the unmoved mover. He's from eternity. And at a point in time, the father created the world through the word, through the son. And then look at verse four again in that son, in that word, in him was life. Now, that's critical, guys, for us to understand for our question regarding leaving life. You'll notice was not created like the other things you pick up on that life was not created like the other things. It's distinct from creation because the word is from eternity. And we recall this right for Jesus, who, who said, I am the resurrection and the life or John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth and the life. He understood that life was in him. 
Life was not created. It was and is in Him. And the life that is in the Word, in Jesus, was the light of men. Light meaning true knowledge of God. And this life that is in Jesus and gives light to men, verse 5, cannot be overcome by darkness. In other words, the light and life of Jesus is stronger than the darkness. Darkness, guys, is meant to point to sin and death. And so Jesus is from eternity. In Him is life. And He gives light of life to men. And the life cannot be overcome by anything. By nothing. Now, I could stop right there and go straight on to our question. But I think it would be helpful to give a little bit more context before we go on. Slide down to verse 9 of chapter 1. We see that the true light was coming into the world. See that? Yet, verse 10, that world that He made did not know Him. And by that, the author means that they were not in fellowship with Him. Verse 11, He came to His own, but His own did not receive Him. His own did not receive Him. Now that His own there is referencing the Israelites. Jesus was born a Jew. He was born under the law, the law of the Israelites. And they, as a whole, did not receive Him. They did not find true light and life in Him. But, verse 12, this is important, look at this one. But to all who did receive Him, we're going to get a lot of information here, who believed in His name, so we get an equation there, receiving Him means to believe in His name. He gave the right. Who did it? The Word. He gave the right to become children of God. So notice that He gave, the Word gave it. Which makes sense, right? Because life is in Him, not in us. And those that believe, they receive it. They believe because He gave the right to become children of God. They received it. And how did they receive it? Look at verse 13. Well, they were born not of blood. So he's going to say three ways in which they didn't receive it. In one way, they did. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man. But they were born, here's the one they are, they are born of God. In other words, those that Christ gave the right of life to, He gave it to them, simple, graciously. He gave it to them 100% gracious. So if it didn't come by anything of our doing, it came not by blood, that's meant by because your parents were, say, Christians, not that way, not by tradition, not by inheritance, no, not by the will of the flesh, that means not by doing stuff, not doing religious deeds, taking the Lord's Supper, coming to church, not that way. Third, not by the will of man. This is a controversial one in our day. That is to say, we didn't choose it. And then he sort of has to recognize it. It happened because Jesus gave it to us that believe. Let me show it to you from another place. Flip over to John chapter 6. Look at John chapter 6, verse 37. Here's Jesus talking. All that the Father Here's the same language. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, this is where we're starting to get a lot of information for our question about leaving, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So how does Jesus understand people that came to Him in belief? He understands that they were given to Him by the Father, right? It wasn't because of their good works, their intellect, their decision, their religious deeds. God gave them to Jesus. And Jesus, the light of life, gives the right to become children of God. And the believer receives that through faith. 
And so since they were given by the Father to the Son, we have confidence then that Jesus says what he says next, that he will never cast them out. God gives believers to Jesus, Jesus who is life. He then grants life. The person receives and Jesus never loses them. Slide down to verse 39 of chapter 6. If you look down there in verse 39, Jesus says, I lose nothing of all that the Father has given me. Verse 40, he keeps them, Jesus says, to the end. So Jesus is keeping believers. Are believers keeping believers? No, Jesus is keeping believers. Christ's gracious hold of us. And then look at verse 44 of chapter 6. No one, this is Jesus talking again, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So yet again, God gives people to the one that has life, right? And the life, Jesus, keeps them all the way to the end. And all of this is happening by grace. One more. John 10.29. Just one verse. John 10.29 says the following. My Father, who is Jesus again. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And you should underline these next words. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now guys, I could give you many more verses, just in John alone, but even in other verses. I could give you many more. We can think about John 17, where Jesus says He never lost anybody. We can think about John 3, where Jesus says they are born of the Spirit, not by flesh. These kinds of things. But the reality is, I think you guys get the point. God is eternal. He's forever. God the Son has life. Darkness cannot overcome the light of His life as it is given to those that believe. This is evident, of course, most notably, most clearly in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Wherein the light of life takes on that flesh and He lives the perfect, sinless, true life. Wherein He never sins. No darkness can overcome Him. He lives a sinless life. He goes to pay the penalty for sinners on the cross because He alone is able. He has no sin. He's fully God and fully man. He pays the penalty for those that believe on the cross. And so as to show that He has that darkness cannot overcome the light, on the third day, what happens? He resurrects from the grave. Right? Revealing that His sacrifice was received, received and then also revealing that He has true life and darkness cannot overcome it. So therefore, that those that have Him will never be lost. Clearly in the Gospel. So God the Father is graciously giving those people to them. The Son is giving them that life. And God, why does God have to do it this way? Well, first off, because we're dead in our sins. Right? We're not diseased in our sins. We're dead in our sins. We're dead in our sins. God is then... God the Son's keeping us because the darkness cannot overcome the light of Christ. And so, in other words, let me kind of pull all this together. Salvation for sinners like us is God-centered and grace-based. God-centered and grace-based. It is centered on God's work in us that believe by His free, sovereign grace from beginning to end. And so since salvation is God-centered, God-initiated, God-empowered, therefore it is then kept by God. God loses none. And why is salvation working this way? Well, first, as I said, we're dead in our sins. It kind of has to work that way. But secondly, God is working salvation this way because He is ultimately after His glory. Therefore, salvation from beginning to end is centered on His glorious work in the life of a believer. Now, I know what some of you are asking. What about me? 
What about us? What's our role in this? We are, uh, we are where are we in this equation of we understand we're dead in our sins, but don't we still have to believe? Well, yes, of course you do. You must believe. You must repent of your sins and believe. Thus the command to go and make disciples of all nations, calling them to repentance and faith in Christ. The way this happens is not sitting at home binge watching Netflix, hoping the Spirit just shows up one day. No, that's not the way this works. God ordains the means as well as the ends. Right? The means is calling sinners. We get to graciously be involved in God's work of redemption. This is amazing that we get to be uh, reconcilers. We get to be part of His reconciling work. And so God is sovereign to work. We are responsible to believe those two things are not mutually exclusive. They are not competing. They are compatible. They work together. C.S. Lewis says it so well. He says regarding the debate between faith and works, it's like asking which blade of scissors is most important. Right. That's a good way to think about it. Or as Paul says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his Good pleasure, which we know from Philippians 1 6. What he began, he will bring to completion. Now you're asking, what does all this have to do with our understanding of those that swerve from the gospel? Well, now that we understand how salvation works, we're now in a better position to understand those that swerve from the gospel. And the best place to do that, the best text to do that, is from 1 John chapter 2. That's going to be to the right in your Bibles. Uh, I'm always helped by knowing. That Hebrews is the good breaker. So you get all of Paul's epistles. They get the longest ones that goes to the shortest one. Then you get Hebrews. And right after Hebrews, that's the great divider of the Pauline epistles. And right after that, you get Peter and then John. Look at 1 Peter chapter, sorry, sorry, 1 John chapter 2. So we've seen so far these things are in the Bible. That is people leaving, swerving. Secondly, we've seen that salvation is God-centered and grace-based. Thirdly, now we're going to get to our question. Thirdly, leaving means never having. Leaving means never having. Look at 1 John chapter 2, 18-19. By the way, I didn't say this. John was an apostle of Jesus. He lived with Jesus for three years. This is his word as God empowered him to write this. Verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Here's our key verse. They, that's the antichrists, they went out from us. That's the church of Christ. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For, here's our explanation, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. Why? Well, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, slide down to verse 22. You can see what Antichrist means by John. Antichrist, he says in verse 22, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now, I should note, this is important for you to understand. By denial, he doesn't just mean that I just don't think that it's true or whatever the case it means. He does mean that. He does mean that it is, I deny that that's true. But he also means those that say that they love Jesus, but their lives contradict it. He includes that as well. Uh, you can see that. I can give you numerous places. This is one of the reasons First John exists as a whole. Go back and read it this afternoon. But let me give you one verse to show 
uh, that that's what John means, namely that it includes not just those that deny it by their mouths, but by their lives. Look at first John one six. It says, if we have fellowship with him, well, sorry, whew, big miss. If we say we have fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, that's sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. So the antichrists of 1 John 2 are not only those that openly oppose the biblical Jesus and the gospel, it's also those that say that they don't oppose him, but their lives illustrate that they do. Their lives lie about their confession. They are anti-Christ. They are opposed to Christ, even if they say they aren't. So how are we to understand people like that? How are we to understand people that may be members of good churches or have been members of good churches or people that did all kinds of good works in Jesus' name and then they go on to swerve? Well, John says plainly there in verse 19, they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That language of of there means born of or uh, derived from or a part of. See, if they were of us, if they had been born of God, they would have continued. And by continued, he means remaining faithful to the gospel. So because, as we saw, the Father gives uh, and the Son then grants the life to become children of God, the Son then keeps them. Therefore, their leaving reveals they were never given to Christ because darkness cannot overcome the light. The swerving from the truth reveals that they never actually were known by the one that said he was the truth. Now, we referenced this earlier, but I think maybe we're in a better position to think about this verse now. Going back to Matthew 7, you can stay there, I'll have it on the screen for you. Going back to Matthew 7, this is Jesus talking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And now that we've understood these things, I think this will be more illustrative to us. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so these are people that say Jesus is Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Knowing there means intimacy. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So John and Jesus obviously agree, friends. There are people who say they believe Jesus is Lord and even do mighty works in his name, but they do not do the will of the Father. That is, their lives don't match their confession. So while they may do some religious things every now and again, take the name of Christ, their lives illustrate that they love the world more than they love the word. And by the way, you can go back up and see this if you want to look later in Matthew 7. The context, Jesus just got finished talking about the good tree bearing good, tree, good fruit and the bad tree bearing bad fruit. So Jesus recognizes, as does John, that one could appear to be a tree. Even a tree that gives fruit. But in reality, when the time for fruit bearing comes, it bears bad fruit. As opposed to those that, tr- that has true life, they will produce good fruit when the time comes. Those that swerve, friends, reveal they were never actually saved. Now, these are hard things even still to understand at times, isn't it? 
We can sometimes see that the fruit is even kind of murky in people. It's hard to tell if they're the real thing or the fake thing. We can think of somebody that maybe was really involved in loving the church, but now they only sort of love the church whenever it's convenient for them. They never really serve the church. They prioritize other things. And so they're here, sort of, but they don't seem to be the same as they maybe once were. Or maybe they claim to love Jesus, then something really hard happened, and they say they still love Jesus, but there's no real fruit to sort of match that. What do we do with that? Well, I think, friends, what John is telling us there in 1 John 2 is to not rush to judgment. Things will become more plain as the trajectory of their lives play out. And the reason for that is, friends, our lives conform to what we love. Our lives conform to whatever it is we love. If the Father gave us to Christ by grace and we trust Him as He holds fast to us, then that love will most certainly persevere because Christ doesn't lose anyone. And we love Him and love our neighbor as ourselves, right? So that will persevere. Therefore, insofar as that person, that real faith is true, their life is going to bend to God as it goes on. But if it isn't real, then as time advances you'll watch their life bend more towards the things that they actually love. More away from things. Things that they love more than Jesus. So things like money or a job or comfort or a relationship or hobby or success or some praise of man. So we are, friends, what we love and we become what we love. We are what we love and we become what we love. Therefore, if we leave the church of Christ, it reveals we have never been born again. But if we do persevere in doctrine and in life, it reveals that we do love God because He first loved us by giving us to His Son. And as time goes on, that ought to be revealed more and more. This is exactly what Paul is saying at the end of his life in 2 Timothy when he says, I fought the good fight, I kept the faith. In other words, he's saying, I got to the end, I really was the real thing. Which begs the question some of you are asking now. Well, Nathan, you said the trajectory of my life will reveal if I'm the real thing, but can I know that now? Well, that's a good question, which I would encourage you to just flip over a couple pages to 1 John 5. And I think the answer to that is yes. You can know now. 1 John 5.13, this is as clear as day. Same letter, by the way, that we just looked at about those that leave. He says later, I write these things to you. I love this about John. John is so great. right? He's so helpful to we Western thinkers. Here's why I'm writing this. Thank you. Sometimes I'm like, Moses, why are you writing this? John makes it clear. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing, you can know this. So again, go back, read the rest of this letter. I think you'll see that that's what John's trying to do. But yes, you can know. But maybe now you're asking the question, well, how can I be sure? Other than waiting to see how the trajectory of my life goes. I know that I can know now, but how can I be more sure that I'm the real thing? Or that person over there is the real thing. Here we go. This is my fourth point. Application. Now we're getting to application. Ready? Join a church. Oh, Nathan, that's your answer. You know, come on. Join a church? Yes. Join a church. Probably not the answer you're hoping for. But it is the answer that the Lord, I believe, has provided for us. So we talked about this, guys, in Judges, in the book of Judges. 
judges to, uh, to not adopt the gods that are around us. The God that is around us, right, is this God of me and individualism. And so our society teaches us inherently to be independent and self-authenticating. And in some cases, as a result of this, anti-authoritarian. Therefore, the concept of church membership in 21st century America, not real popular, right? Come on, Nathan, you want to grow this church? Get these seats over here filled out. Get rid of the membership. No, but church membership, friends, demands commitment. Commitment is good. Commitment is good. Ask that to a healthy married couple. Commitment is not a very popular concept to an independent people. We like keeping our options open, doing as we please. And committing to a local church through membership is the device, though, that God has given to help make us more sure that we really have been given to Jesus. It's his good and gracious gift. And you can see that, by the way, in 1 John 2, in that us language. They left the us. But let me show you how membership can confirm and confront believers. Let me make something really clear. If you're taking notes, make sure and write this down. The church doesn't make believers. Right? Jesus does that. Right? Jesus makes believers. Let me show you, though, how God institutes, Jesus institutes to the local church and church membership so as to help the believer on and make clear to them that they're the real thing. I'm going to look at Matthew 16. Flip over there. You were in 1 John. I told you I was going to frustrate you. Matthew chapter 16. That's the first book in the New Testament. Matthew 16. All right, right here we have Jesus talking to Peter. Peter has just gotten the proper confession of who Jesus is. And he says in Matthew 16, 17, you're going, this is going to sound familiar to you, Jesus tells him, Jesus, Peter just said the real answer to who Jesus is. And Jesus says uh, that flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Same language as John 1, right? In other words, Peter, you didn't figure this out because you're really bright. We all know that that's not true. He has a foot-shaped mouth, right? It's Peter. But he does this. Jesus understands the Father has given you eyes to see me for who I am. He did this in you. But then Jesus goes on after this proper confession in verses 18 and 19. And he says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. You need to understand what this rock is. We'll get to that. I will build my church. There's the church that I was talking about. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Peter was recognized by Jesus as a proper confessor because he had the proper confession of the gospel, of who Jesus is and what he's coming for. Therefore, Jesus says upon him, again, upon his, the proper confessor with the proper confession, he would build his church, his assembly, his assembly. The him there upon him as a proper confessor since he had the proper confession. And the way that he was going to build his church, Jesus, this, his whole mission is to come to pay the penalty for sins, ascend to the Father, and create a people from every tribe, tongue, and language. And so the way that he was going to build this church was by giving the keys of the kingdom to Peter and those like Peter in order for them to bind and loose. Bind and loose proper confessors based on the proper confession of Christ. And so this power of the keys or authority to bind and loose to recognize and release was given to the church. And he was and is using the church as his uh, method to uh, reach the nations. 
Now, you might say, well, Nathan, that word church, there's only referencing the universal church, not referencing local churches like this one. Well, that would be true from there. But let me show you how Jesus understands what he's talking about in Matthew 16 matches to local congregations like this. Flip over to Matthew 18, just a few chapters or just a couple chapters down. You can see that right after this interchange in Matthew 18, when Jesus describes how to deal with someone that takes the name of disciple, yet is swerving or unwilling to repent of their sin and follow Jesus, he says in Matthew 18, it's just one page in my Bible, verse 17, after explaining the process of what to do with this person that's swerving away, an unrepentant sinner, taking the name of the Lord Jesus, he says in verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, now he's just said, Go one person, go tell them to repent. If they don't bring two or three other people along, tell them to repent. And if they don't do that, then he get this. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, this is the worst person that's swerving. If he refuses to listen to them, two or three witnesses, tell it to the who church, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means outsider. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the same language of Matthew 16. And so that, friends, is the context of that often misquoted verse. This would be in the top five verses of most misquoted verses. I'm sure has confused you. Matthew 18, 20, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. Has that confused a good portion of you? Like, oh, I thought Jesus was with us all that love it. Well, he is. See, now maybe you understand what he's saying in Matthew 18, 20 is I'm there among the two or three that make up a church and I'm with that decision. That's what he's saying. That's the context. And of course, telling it to the church would not mean every time I found out that, let's say, Joey was walking in unrepentant sin. He's not just to be clear. All right. I want to make that really clear. I did this at community group on Tuesday. Poor Curtis, wherever you are. He got there. Sorry, Curtis. Yeah, he was the really bad guy. So Joey's the bad guy. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that like, all right, I need to get on a conference call with every church on planet Earth. Want to let everybody know Joey's walking. Are we good to let him go? What? Who? You know, how would you even do that? Jesus is recognizing that this is going to be a known community, a definable community. Uh, so th- this is because, guys, Jesus has given the power of the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose those that claim to be citizens of the kingdom. He's given that to the local church. The authority of the keys is not given to isolated individuals. In other words, I can't go and discipline Joey on my own. Who am I? But to two or three confessors who are holding fast to the proper confession. How? By the grace of God. I think pastor, author Michael Lawrence sums this teaching up well in his book on little book on conversion when he says this. He says, quote, Jesus did not leave behind a crowd of self-affirming of individuals and one-time decision makers. Rather, he left behind a church with authority to baptize and give the Lord's Supper, which is another way of saying he left behind something we call church membership. Church membership at its biblical core, he says, is our affirmation and oversight of one another's profession of faith and discipleship to Christ, which we do through baptism and the Lord's Supper. Unquote. So the local church and membership therein is like an embassy of your native land in a foreign country. You show up wanting your passport stamped and you produce the material and they, having been authorized by your state, stamp the passport and say, yes, this is a citizen of our country. And by the way, uh, as is evidenced by that example, it takes both sides, the church and the individual, to bind and loose. 
You're not a member of a church just because you've deemed it on your own any more than someone might deem themselves an American citizen because they live here and like living here, right? It takes the state and the person to sort of work that process through. Or any more than you can say that you're married to someone that you've been on a date two or three times with, right? Say, I'm married to her. And the other person, like, they might like you, but they still need to say, no, that's, yeah, I'm going to commit to them. It takes both sides to make sure that you are both in agreement. And so it is with the church. The church is Jesus' agent to exercise the authority of binding and loosing citizens of the kingdom of God. Helping make more clear who the citizens are. And when they start swerving, they can help check them. There's a process in place in the church to do that where there is not outside the church. And so friends, one of the reasons why there is a glut of people in our country that confess Christ and yet in actuality have left the gospel is because I believe local churches in large part have failed in this important teaching of utilizing the keys of the kingdom. Just not been careful. In an effort to grow churches' numbers, they loosen up on membership if they have it at all. And in the process, they fail to love those people who have in reality left the us of the gospel because they never had it made plain to them through their discipline. The church never helped them in that way because they didn't, we weren't careful. As a result, people are now walking around affirming themselves as Christians And Jesus is saying to a lot of those people, I don't know you. And if they were in healthy local churches with membership, there would be pastors and other members helping them know that. But because churches have not been careful, now it's more sloppy. And by the way, if we were to do this and be more careful with this, wouldn't the witness of the church be stronger to a lost and dying world? But also, friends, it's also important to know, just as important, church membership helps define where other citizens of the kingdom are so that they can exhort you and rebuke you and encourage you and pray for you and and encourage you on towards loving Jesus and not swerving. And it helps pastors, we pastors, to know where the sheep are. So if we see them swerving, we can say, get over back here into the fold. And if they refuse and leave us in doctrinal life, then we can lovingly make that clear to them through discipline in hopes of seeing them return. But if they never join with us, uh, they are then hampered. They're hampered and we're hampered from being confident as to where they are. And so, yes, friends, you can know if you are the real thing, if you are in Christ. You don't need the church because Jesus saves us. But the church is Jesus' agent, his embassy that exercises his authority on earth. And so, friends, submit to the church by joining for your good, for the good of others and for the exaltation of Christ. But before we step away from this important question of what to make of those that swerve from the gospel, I cannot leave without reminding us where to look to be confident in our salvation. And that's where I'll end. We've said that we need to make sure that we recognize the Bible is aware of these kinds of situations. We said that salvation is God-centered and grace-based. We said thirdly, kind of the heart of the question, that those that swerve reveals that they never actually were of the church. And fourthly, finally, most importantly, as you think about this question, if you, whether or not evaluating if you're swerving, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12. Final time. You can jump over there. Look to Jesus. Hebrew 12, make this so clear. He's just finished in chapter 11 talking about these people of faith. God's working in them of faith. We've already talked about faith and where that comes from. He's finished that and then he concludes in Hebrews 12, the author does, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, 
Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run. Here's the word with endurance. The race that is set before us out in front of us. How? Three words looking to Jesus. And and guys, pay attention to these next words. The founder and perfecter of our faith. We set aside sin. We run the race in front of us by looking to Jesus. Why? We should know that by now, right? He's the one that has life in him, not us. Or as he says here, he, Jesus, is the founder of our faith and he's the perfecter of our faith. Or another saying in another way, he's the finisher of our faith. He founded it. He'll finish it. Him. Look to him. You did not or begin. Your, you did not begin your faith. Jesus did. We've already seen that. And you will not be the one that finishes your faith. We've already seen that. He loses none. He finishes our faith. Therefore, what do those that love the gospel need to do since Jesus is willing and working in us for our good pleasure, his good pleasure? We join churches, but ultimately we need to look to Jesus. You don't need to look to your Bible reading plan to bring you home to heaven. You don't need to look to your prayer plan to bring you home to heaven. You don't even need to look to your church membership to bring you home to heaven. You need to look to Jesus. He's the one that began your faith. He's the one that will finish your faith. And so lay aside sin and look to Jesus. Guys, listen, we need to understand the evil one, what he wants to do in this nature of looking to Jesus. The evil one deceives those that swerve from the true gospel by having them look to all kinds of other things other than Jesus to kind of give them assurance. The evil one would have you to look to a prayer that maybe you prayed when you were seven, eight, nine or ten. He would have you to look to uh, maybe uh, some sort of uh, uh, inheritance that you have. You know, you were born in a Christian family and you're not a Muslim. Therefore, I have insurance there. Or maybe it's uh, you would he would have you to look to uh, what some believer said to you years ago or some other religious activity. Giving them the evil one gives them false assurance because they are looking at something that is unable to begin and finish their faith. Looking to Jesus, though, friends, he is the founder. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the one that secured our faith at the cross. He is the one that is holding us on as we get home. He's the one that's holding us fast. It is not our hold of Him that we need to look to. It is His hold of us that we need to constantly look at. John Owen says of Jesus that He is the meat, the bread, the food provided by God for your soul. Isaac Ambrose says that Jesus is the ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man. Looking to Jesus, he says, is the epitome of Christian's happiness, the quintessence of evangelical duties. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And how is it you say, I look at him? I can't see him. Well, friend, you look at the cross. That's how you see him. You look at the cross because at the cross is where we see his love and his power come together. That's where he purchases our salvation. That's where it will be seated to when you go to heaven. Why should I let you into my kingdom? My answer, you shouldn't. But I plead Jesus and what he has done on my behalf. So look to him in daily and private prayer. Look to him as you read and meditate on the scriptures. Look to him as you sing. Look to him as you serve others in Jesus name. Look to him as you listen to the word be preached. Look to him as you walk by the way, as you lie down and as you rise up. Look to Jesus. He alone is the founder and finisher of our faith. And join with other Christians so that we can help each other do that. And soon enough, Christian, we will see him face to face. And we will be with him forever. And we will be reminded that all of this was worth it. Difficult though it is.
we will look at him and say, you, Jesus, kept me. You loved me first. And you have brought me home. And we will rejoice on that day together as one assembly. All those local churches bounding up in heaven together, rejoicing in the glory of Christ. That day, friend, is soon coming. And may we help each other look to him until then. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we agree. We are dead in our sins. You have life in you. And by the grace of you, Father, you have given us to Jesus through faith. And oh, Jesus, what joy it is to know that you secured our salvation at the cross. And what joy it is to know that you will keep us to the end. What you begun, you will finish. Help us to look to Jesus. And God, help others that are swerving. Help us to be those that love them enough to warn them. And may we as a church be the people that binded loose carefully so as to make clear where Your people are. Lovingly serving them in that way. Oh, Jesus, thank You for such assurance. May we look to You all of our days. Even now, as we take this meal, that's what we do. We look to You. May we not look to ourselves. And may we not swerve, but trust You. We pray in Your name. Amen.